1: I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Hi, everyone. So Wild and I are having a break over the Christmas period and we'll be running a bunch of my favorite episodes during this time that you might have missed along the way. I've chosen this chat with poet Bayo Akmalafi because it's dense with advice for complex times, times in which humanity struggles to encapsulate things with tidy answers, times like right now. Bayo riffs in this episode with the most uplifting advice for relaxing into our entanglement with the world and, as he says, joining the chaos It's forever timely, so I wish you all and uh, all your families a happy Christmas slash school holidays slash summer break if you're in Australia. This week's guest will likely, quote unquote, shock you into noticing the world differently because it's his aim. It's what he seeks himself from all his conversations. The glorious Bayo Akamalafi is an author and teacher at several universities and institutions across the UK, US, Canada and India. He was born in Western Nigeria, grew up in Germany and now lives between the US and India with his wife and son and daughter. Bayo is also a Yoruba poet and calls himself a fugitive, a wild idea we'll get to shortly. And something I wasn't aware of at first, he has a massive global following who will travel the globe to hear him talk post-humanist ideas, quantum physics, eco-feminism, transraciality, and post-activism, the latter two terms being ones that he coined. He's also won the 2021 New Thought Walden Award, which honors those who use empowering spiritual ideas and philosophies to change lives and make our planet a better place. I've come to learn that Bayo is a true sage for our times. I first came across him when a therapist friend of mine, Natalie, shared one of his poetic essays over WhatsApp. It was while I was overseas, in Greece, I think it was, and I'd got myself into one of my frantic kind of moments in my aloneness. I'm guessing everyone has a friend who does this, who sends a a lonely soul a wisdom when they need it. Natalie is one of mine. Now before we started the interview, I asked Bayo if he'd read out this particular poem. Here it is.
2: Once I lived on the tarred, lonely highways of truth, slogging towards the looming horizons, the promised dwelling places for those who did not waver. The whole world was about being either right or wrong. I was either lost or found. That was many years ago, though. Today, when I meet people, I recognize how utterly beyond right and wrong they are how their lives are symphonies beyond orchestration, how their mistakes and failings are actually cosmic explorations on a scale grander and of a texture softer than our most dedicated rule books could possibly account for.
1: Okay, you get the feel. The guy is very, very special. He also works, as you can tell, in intense metaphor using what he calls trickster philosophy to be able to point to the complex stuff that we're struggling with which as I've written about in this one wild and precious life, which is the only way we can get to the big issues. We need techniques that get us out of our own way so that we can feel into the messages between the words. Straight prose just doesn't cut it. So my conversation with Bayo takes a slightly different vibe to what normally does with the scientists and philosophers I often have on this show. We basically talk new wild ways of approaching the complexity of issues on our plate right now, That don't exist yet, that entail us getting lost and embracing our entanglement. You know, seeing the climate crisis as an opportunity and becoming a fugitive, which is a bold human who goes beyond right and wrong and walks a third way. Look, it's not comfortable stuff. The journey that Bayo takes us on in this conversation is unfamiliar and it doesn't fit the normal ways, the normal paradigms. But you know what? That's the point. I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Bayo Akamalafi. Bayo Akamalafi, thank you so much for joining us here on Wild.
2: It's my great pleasure to be with you, sister. Thank you for having me.
1: (laughs) Hey, can you tell everyone where you're actually talking to us from?
2: I'm at home in Chennai, India with my family.
1: Another opening question that I might pose to you, and it's actually a take on a Farsi version of how are you, a Persian version of how are you. And I refer to it in my most recent book, This One Wild and Precious Life, but it translates to instead of how are you, to how is the state of your heart in this breath? Would you be able to add to that on for us?
2: <laughs> I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot there. I do feel a bit exhausted. I've been doing a lot of traveling and I'm in the middle of that. So I'm about to embark an, on another trip. But I also feel excited about the things that are unfolding around my work and most especially around the people that have been called to me and I've been called to. I'm also feeling particularly grateful about being at home right now with my people, with my family, with my son and daughter, and my wife. I guess that's how I'll go about that. Yeah.
1: Well, look, the reach of your work is so wide and profound, and it's really hard to know where to start a conversation with you. Although I do, I know. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Although I mean, you know, it's also called where the planet's at, right? Where do you start? But and I do want to wind up at the climate crisis, but then again. All paths do wind up at the climate crisis, I think, at some point. Why don't we start with this notion of the fugitive? You describe yourself as a fugitive and you say you're looking for conversations that are fugitive, that escape, that grant themselves permission to do what they want to do. What do you actually mean by that
2: word, fugitive? My intention is to notice the ways that most of us are becoming politically homeless In these times. I mean, there is a sense in which we are compelled to either articulate our positions about things with the left or with the right, the political left or the political right, but there is a sense in which they become, they start to feed each other and look like each other. The left adopts strategies of resistance that make it look more and more conservative, if you, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah. In the rigidity of their thinking, is that
2: what you mean? Something like in the rigidity of their thinking. Like um, I was just speaking with a dear sister yesterday about identity and how we do need an identity politics, right? Identity politics is the situating of minoritarian and minority positions and values and concerns and critiques you know, it's a way to say you have to notice and recognize us too, right? And so th- it becomes a way of situating a cause based on shared identities. But the thing is, Sometimes in, you know, in these times we're rejecting identity, we're rejecting yes. the notion of identity, but in rejecting identity, you kind of carve out an identity, <laughs> right? Uh, in, yeah. in, saying, in saying, I reject identity, that becomes your identity. So there's something ironic about resistance that ties us back into the very conditions we're trying to extricate ourselves from. So it becomes a very sticky binary. The left acts like the right, and the right acts like the left, and patterns emerge. And then it becomes this one big plantation. And notice I'm using terms and concepts and ideas that might be derived from slaving communities, especially in the antebellum South in the United States. So it becomes like a plantation. So the the concept of the fugitive arises from this invitation to refuse. Well, not it's not basically, it doesn't boil down to choice, right? Like a human wagging one's finger and saying, I refuse that. That's not what I mean by refusal. I'm looking at the conditions that allow us to do something different with politics to frame different kinds of political imaginations and imaginaries that don't tie us back into an unproductive binary that leaves us stuck. This is what I mean by the fugitive, like escaping the status quo.
1: So the fugitive walks the third way, so to speak.
2: Beautiful. That's one beautiful way to put it. I tell stories of tricksters and the trickster in my culture comes from this known by the number three in my culture or aligned with the number 3 right it's like two lines running yes. parallel of each other and then a transversal third breaking through that parallel um, uh, binary so the th- third line is is where the trickster comes in breaking a pattern yes
1: so how do you go about being a fugitive walking the third way not being caught up in going out to that field beyond right and wrong. You know, I think it's the Rumi poem, isn't it? Yes. How do you go about that? Because I think the idea appeals, you know, we do live in a world where it's Those who are cancelling arc up about cancel culture. And as you say, the right and the left are all actually behaving in a similar way. It's almost like a race to the bottom of the worst of the behaviour from the left and the right. And the normal ways that we used to be able to establish patterns, you know, that sort of identity politics no longer exist. They intersect and they knot up. And as you say, we do feel politically homeless. And we're all looking for a way to make sense of all of this. The idea of walking a third way is very inviting, but how do we go about
2: that? So this is the concern. These are the questions that are propagated in what seems to be my central thesis, which is what I call post-activism. And one of the tenets of this, of these discussions and conversations I'm having around the world is that it doesn't come down to human beings deciding to design a new future. You know, that seems to be the presumption in most spaces, in most activist spaces, that we can summarily decide the, the, the future if only we have the political will or if only we have funding, or if only we have this or that, or if only we have an Obama kind of figure. But the invitation of post-activism is to notice that we are and we have always been entangled with what we rudely call nature, that nature isn't outside of us. Nature is, in fact, (laughs) nature is what unravels nature. We are nature, right, in its ongoingness. So, In order to really think about agency and accountability and responsibility, we must tie our bodies and our minds and our psyches and our activities to what the world, ecologies, environments, microbes, furnitures, textures, colors are doing. Right. It's not about, we, we cannot, we can no longer march into the sunset and you know, claim a hero's narrative. We have to come to a place of deep humility and notice that sometimes we will get stuck in patterns. We will behave like our technologies, right? Th- this is the fascinating thing that is central to the conversations that are called post humanism, for instance, or new materialism, right? Is that we are summoned by our technologies, that Sarah isn't a unique or a separate human being sitting with her laptop right now, having a conversation with Bayer who is also sitting with a laptop. No, we are algorithms, (laughs) right? Yeah. We will often behave like algorithms, sometimes to our own surprise. So the invitation is to relinquish our claims to mastery first. Also notice that we are part of what the world is doing, and that means that we will not always think straight. But the converse is probably the more, the more striking one in response to your question, that we want to look for places of breaks and openings that allow us to think differently.
1: I think that's really interesting, this idea that we need to sort of stop thinking that we can think straight because yeah. the world is not straight. You
0: know? No, no. The
1: world is convoluted and knotted. And so it's impossible for us to think that we can suddenly get this holistic bird's eye view on the scenario. And I like, I know you say this quite often, you know, what if the way we are responding to the crisis is, is part crisis. of the Yes, Yes. exactly. That you know, we are basically trying to solve the problem. What was, I think it was Einstein, you know, said, you know, to try to solve a problem with the same consciousness that caused it in the first place is the definition of insanity. That's similar to what you're saying, isn't it? I mean, you're sort of, it's the inverse in some ways because you're saying, well, we need to actually join the chaos of it all and get comfortable with the chaos of it all in order to be able to work our way through this.
2: Yes, it's that the idea that we can stand outside of the world, you know, in some godlike posture and divine the next move to make. It it reminds me of that great saying: "Give me a place to stand, and I shall move the world." I forget the Greek; it's escaping my morning brain right now. Give me the place to stand, and I shall move the whole world. A famous Nigerian author responds. His name is Chinua Achebe, and he responds to. That cry for exclusivity, for separability, he says, but there is no place to stand. We have to stand with the world and move at its own pace. That humbling recentering or decentering of the human is a shocking thing to do, especially to modern citizens. But just a quick anecdote, and this is an example from Denmark. In November 2021, I believe, a municipality in that country came to world consciousness because of what was happening there. They had this program, this project to clear their shores of, um, debris, seaweed, plastic, and all of that. And they did it. They had, they committed $150,000 equivalent to this project right to clearing and cleaning the shores and beaches the thing is they would clear it the tractors would do the work and then dump what they cleared back into the water
1: (laughs) i shouldn't (laughs) laugh but you know
2: (laughs) it's laughable it's laughable i mean the the headlines came with terse judgments like stupid. This is extremely stupid. And, and I wonder about how we are collectively stupid. And I don't mean stupid in a derogatory way. I mean stupid in terms of impervious to what the world is doing, impervious to our own imbrications and entanglement within patterns that exceed us right? This is exactly the issue of post-activism, that we get the thing to do is to get lost.
1: I love this phrase.
2: Is to move away from our maps. Yes.
1: Yes, it's really nice. Actually, I do want to expand out to the broader crises, the climate crisis and so on in a moment, because you've got some wonderful thoughts on that. But if we were even to bring it in close to home, to our personal, our spiritual selves, I've heard you quote the Yoruba, which is the Nigerian. It's the community that you belong to or you, you hark from in Nigeria. There's a proverb in order to find your way, you must become lost. I'd love you to talk this idea, particularly in the context of where we're at trying to find meaning and solutions in a very existentially confronting era.
2: I mean, the context for this conversation and getting lost really came from uh, many years ago, I stayed staying with or studying with some babalawos. Babalawas are the equivalent of shamans in Siberia or any other place. It's, they're like priests, you know, they're divine lawyers, they're wise men, they're healers. And I sat with them to understand psychopathology, basically, mental illness, whatever you want to call it, from their perspective, doing a PhD in clinical psychology. And I remember some of them just, at least one of them, pointing out to me that our dependence on pills and our dependent on our diagnostic tools was getting in the way of us noticing that there are other beings and realities and subjectivities and notions and worlds around us. And sometimes we actually frame health as closure. We put up walls and we say, this is what it means to be healthy. This is what well-being means, right? And so the invitation was, you have built a highway and now you have to veer off that smooth road and go into the jungle where the spirits are hiding. This is almost verbatim what he told me, that you've pushed off the spirits with your noise and you want to go to the spaces where the world's agency thrives. You don't have to believe in disembodied ghosts, you know, to hear the word spirits. That's not what I dance with. Right. Uh, But, but the, the idea that we are performing, collectively performing closure is very, very powerful to me. And that we are losing sight or we have lost sight of the generosity and the generativity of a world that exceeds our performances is what calls me to this work. So losing one's way is about going to the cracks. You know, this brings us to a conversation about cracks. And by cracks, I mean, places of displacement and what we, from our perspective, will call disability. I mean to say that if patterns are to change, they need to break open.
1: I think we all feel that, definitely. Absolutely.
2: Yes. In order to really stay with their breaking openness, we do not want to pathologize it, right? And I'm speaking in very real terms as a father of an autistic son, right? That from one perspective, there might be this instigation to cure him to bring him back to normal, to reform him, to stop him from flailing his hands and screaming, right? But there's also a different staying with, a different invitation to stay with the trouble of that, to accompany him, to refuse to, and I'm doing air quotes, heal him. And I think in following the disabled, the breaking open of things, we might happen upon new ways of being with the world. That's my thesis.
1: You write a lot about activism and the exhausting hyper-object that is the climate crisis, but you have a very interesting take. And in an essay, a very long essay, and I'll put this particular, the link to this essay in the show notes, What Climate Collapse Asks of Us, you argue that we come at it with solutions and attempts to tame the crisis. And we can see how that's going, right? It's it's kind of like putting putting uh, solar panels on on the slave ship. What is it that you say that the climate crisis is indeed asking of us instead?
2: Bodies do not precede body pathways, you know, I I often like to say. And and by that, I mean that the gestures of a body, the anticipatory moves of a body, of an organism, is also that organism. There is a sense in which the Anthropocene, which is this name that is still a proposal with the stratigraphic authorities um, for the geological epoch we're in, there is a sense in which we are co-producing the age of man, this industrial age that is defined by climate chaos, among other phenomena. There is a sense in which it is not a thing outside of us. It is attached, entangled to how we produce knowledge, how we think about ourselves, how we think about what it means to be an identity, how we relate with the world around us. Is all entangled in this troubling epoch that we're in. So I'm noticing that our calculations, our algorithms may be subsumed under the category of a of climate sciences can only take us to the place where we mark the crisis, but cannot take us beyond that. It seems there is something else that is being asked of us that is probably an animist invitation, right? Because we're living in the clearing, in a clearing right now, in a jungle that is desirous of management techniques and logistic techniques. It's a way for us to claim our sense of home, right? It's like living in a fishbowl, yes. right? But imagine you're in a fishbowl and somehow you come, you, you realize one, or you've been, you've been grown in a fishbowl. And then one day you come to this shocking realization that there is something outside of the fishbowl, that there is a world that has its own prerogatives and imperatives that will not fit neatly into your own code or your programs or your projects of continuity. What do you do then? You shape shift. I mean, shape shifting is, is not something we can summarily really do, snap our fingers and wish for. It's something about meeting the monster because that's the agency of the monster It's the monster that exceeds us that allows shape shifting to happen. But living in a fishbowl means that all our knowledges are domiciled and territorialized within that fishbowl. And this is what climate science is. It's naming the monster, but it, it won't bring us to the monster, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it, it points at and says, look, it seems we're, you know, we are way in over our heads. Like this seems to be something else that we did not account for our death, right? You know, and, But but then it doesn't know what to do with that. It's just like critique or even identity politics. Identity politics can name the oppression, but it stops there. It uses the same knowledge and epistemology and tools of modern civilization to address modern civilization. But it doesn't know how to think beyond that. This is the same thing that is, I think, the crisis with climate issues. So what do we do with the chaos is the question
1: if I hear you correctly, are you saying that the climate collapse itself when it strikes? Well, it's it's striking now. We're in it now. Is it the thing that will, to use your analogy, let's continue with it, like smash the fishbowl and get us to confront the thing that only science can point to? Is that what you're saying? Is that what it's asking of us?
2: What it's asking of us is unknowable from within the fishbowl. It's transversal. I use the word transversal.
0: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Something outside of the pattern that we're used to, the sense of the familiar, the status quo, norm, normative modes of engaging the world is interacting or interacting with the world and disturbing our sense of being at home. We can only know this thing in part,
1: I listen to you and I, I'm always in a climate conversation looking for the hopeful message, the thing <laughs> that we can hang on to that can give us even just a fusion of hope. Hearing you talk about this, I sort of think, well, you know, yes, climate chaos, it's the thing that's going to take us to that level of questioning that, that nothing else will, right? It's yep. fully existential. And then I'm like, well, maybe that in itself is the thing that will lift us to a level of consciousness, right? Where we can save it. But I guess I'm still on that slave ship, aren't I? i
2: to solve problems. No, it's okay to want to solve problems, right? There's nothing wrong in wanting to solve problems. And I wouldn't, I hardly use the word wrong or right. It's fine to want to solve a problem. It's just that we have thought of ourselves quite uniquely as unique problem solvers, as that we can just create a resolution and that we're not indebted to the world in some way when we do so. And that sometimes solutions often masquerade as problems or problems masquerading as solutions, vice versa. It's that the world repeats itself or regurgitates itself sometimes through our work, our very hardworking efforts to address the crisis. You know, it's just like I say that the, the effort to address the crisis could be how the crisis manifests itself. The very effort to try to understand climate chaos as a natural phenomenon, as something that is within the accountability space of humans acting upon the world. Maybe that's the crisis. Maybe the crisis is our sense of mastery. Maybe the crisis is that we are excluded from being terrified by this. Maybe the crisis is that we can defeat this and move on. Maybe the crisis is that we can create green solutions and just sequester carbon. You know, these are all the organizational reductionisms that we ritualize in trying to meet this monster or to explain its orbit.
1: All of that resonates. It really does resonate. And I do feel I very much agree with the idea that the way we're responding is part of the crisis and what came first, chicken or the egg. I guess I am hearing that part of the invitation that climate collapse issues to us is to get humble and to join nature, to almost just give in and just, you know, relent to the flow, which is very counterintuitive for humans when we see that, well, we caused this destruction. Gosh, we're good at causing destruction. We can really stuff things up, right? We're like a two-year-old that can tear apart a bedroom, but they yeah. can't put it back together again. You know. Yeah. So there's a certain amount of relief in knowing that, well, yes, this is where we're at. We've got to join this chaos and, I don't know, board the lilo, the inflatable boat, and just let the river take us and get humble in, in the process. Is that sort of on track with what you're seeing? I know that part of your thesis is to say we don't know. And of course, part of the, the very Western slave ship mentality is to need to know, you know?
2: <laughs> we need to know, you know, it's, it's how we, and knowing is a stabilizing of the world, right? This is what knowledge is in as a modern representational phenomenon. It's basically saying you sit still. And I will move, and it's like telling someone to sit still for a photograph, right, or uh, for a selfie, or maybe not a selfie in this instance. Maybe it's just like sit still, and I will have a snapshot, and I will archive and index and categorize and put in the library this snapshot. And this archival process constitutes knowledge. So this is what knowledge means in our
1: the categorization of moments.
2: Yes. However. The scandalous thing is when those images move, isn't it? <laughs> right? yep. Like, I thought I categorized you. How dare you move, right? You, yes, you're not supposed to move. That's a
0: beautiful
1: analogy, by the way. <laughs> that really
2: sums it up. So this is what's scandalous. We Modern civilization is the relationality that brings us to a world that is supposedly dead mute, dumb, and still. And suddenly the world moves and the world is promiscuous and the world is no longer faithful to our imperatives and we're outraged. And so we want to put it back in a family way, which is what solutionism is trying to do. It's like, stay still. We need to build a parking lot here. Okay. How about we do it with with solar panels? Would that please you? It's all the <laughs> negotiations and consultations we're having to have the world resume its status of background for human activity. But the invitation at large is, how about we notice that we are part of this? We're like a wave in the ocean trying to be bigger than the ocean. If the wave is saying, one day I shall be bigger than the ocean. <laughs> and, and, but the, the wave is the ocean in its ongoingness, right? So the, this yeah. is the invitation at large. Yes.
1: Is to, yes, accept your part of, as part of it, not The overarching meta thing that views it from above. No,
2: no, no, we're, we're part of it and there is no escaping this. We move at its pace. And that's why the idea that we can outthink the crisis is a laughable proposal. The crisis is us.
1: Okay, so when we get lost together as part of this post-activist approach, yes, dare I ask, what then? What are some of the practices, processes, openings that happen from there, perhaps that you've witnessed or that you envisage out of this?
2: They're not formed completely yet. They're ongoing. This is an artistic, aesthetic enterprise, an underground, subterranean endeavour that is really an invitation for people to change and I'm not talking about change in terms of change yourself before you change the world. That is just yes, that is some annoying stuff. That <laughs> <laughs> I, I change yourself within before you meet the world without it. I think still reinforces those same old nature culture boundaries the we're divide. trying to. Yes, I'm not speaking about that. I'm speaking about encountering a world that meets us in return and allows us to become different subjects, right? This is what in critical theory and literature might be called desubjectivization, right? It's like we become stranger, right? We become different in these encounters. A unique example is from post-Second World War France with visionary that is really inspiring my work called Fernand Deligny. And he lived from 1913 to 1996, but he lived his hardest work was in a time when autistic children were being incarcerated in asylums. And these people in the asylums, I think about 45,000 people died. And not just due to the war, but because speculatively, allegedly, because of some policies that the Nazi government, the occupation in France, had instituted to get rid of discardable material, like people suffering in the asylums. So Deligny was part of a a movement called Institutional Psychotherapy that was trying to bracket the asylum and as a fascist arrangement and say, no, we're not going to heal them. You know, to heal them is to reinstall the supremacy of neurotypicality, for instance, not that they used terms like the neurotypical then, but just to get my point across to those listening. And Fernand Delini decided to lead a project by, you know, starting these rugged terrain communities like a guerrilla project where autistic children could thrive, nonverbal autistic children. And the community did not thrive on language, right? It was in the south of France. And it was in this unforgiving territory. And they lived and thrived in this community by not trying to reform the kids or not trying to heal them or not trying to cure them. It was an abiding with them. It was staying with the trouble of the autistic. And they started to create these projects, these maps. They would follow the kids around and just following them around just by tracing, not to explain their trajectories, but just to be with them. And you know, one of the most fascinating things I read about the, this cartography, this, what Fernand called wonder lines, right? They were yeah. tracing wonder lines. One of the most fascinating thing I've learned about that is that they kind of realized that some of the kids were actually tracing the underground water, right? They were following the underground water. Wow. Yes. That us. So-called neurotypicals could not hear that somehow the so-called mad trajectories of those children aligned with the route of underground water. And this is just fascinating to me. It's a it's a project in unlearning mastery, you see. So I think this is the kind of project, the kind of aesthetic, the kind of invitation that I think might blossom in these times of stockness is what I call making sanctuary. And what Fernando Lini did there in the rocky terrains in Cévennes, south of France, was a making sanctuary. Just to add something quick, making sanctuary is not keeping things safe. Making sanctuary is creating the right conditions for the monster to thrive.
1: And I would imagine similar to that is also our understanding and appreciation and learning about Indigenous practices because that idea of the wonderlines really brings to mind Indigenous Australian songlines. Yes. And I think this is a big opportunity as well that the climate crisis presents to us is to open into these Indigenous practices as well. There's a knowingness that we can't fathom but then, again, seems to be quite on point.
2: Even then, you know, there is a sense in which we codify and freeze the indigenous as if it were this archive of new solutions that we haven't been paying attention to. I get this all the time.
1: Yeah. You know, I know like what you're saying. Yes. You do, right?
2: It's it's like, oh, you're from the Yoruba people. So tell us what we're missing in our analysis of how to address the climate chaos. It's like the even the the indigenous is frozen as a category. But the indigenous is also moving. I hate to speak about in the the indigenous anywhere, as if it were this reliquary or th- this house of solutions we can just extricate or extract from. I want to suggest that the Indigenous doesn't know what to do as well. <laughs> and that, yes, it's, it's not just this stable place where there are, there are technologies that we can just dip into and revive. It's a way of being in the world. It is not a sense of arrival. It is not a place of coming intact to. The Indigenous is also troubled and troubling so that the modern can pay attention to it, but The modern paying attention to it often assumes the posture of give us more, give us more solutions, and that reinstalls or reinforces the same extractivist relationality that is so troubling to me.
1: I'm still on that sh- slave ship, aren't I, <laughs> with <laughs> that kind of thinking? <laughs> yeah, it's such challenging ways of looking at things. And I do adore that you pose all of these questions and the whole point is not to present us with a nice cookie cutter answer. The whole point is we don't know, but you're saying we've got to listen to the invite, to follow the invite. There's a piece that is actually the welcome message on your website. And I think it sums up a fair bit of what we've just been talking about here. And it introduces an extra point, which I'd love you to talk about. I'm sort of cutting and pasting here. It's a beautiful welcome to your website. So, and everyone listening should go and check it out, but I'm just cutting to the, the bits that I want to cut to here. May this new decade be remembered as the decade of the strange path, of the third way, of the broken binary, of the traversal disruption, the post-human movement for emancipation, the gift of disorientation that opened up new places of power and of slow limbs. Welcome to the decade of of the fugitive. Let's talk slow limbs because there's another Yoruba proverb that you are very well known for presenting to us. And it goes like this, the times are urgent. Let's slow slow down. down. What do you mean by this? I mean, I know intuitively, I think a lot of people listening kind of get it. It seems counterintuitive, at least to our rational materialist brains and to the normal that we've been living in for so long. But there does seem to be a, a knowing truth to that can you just tell us what you think that proverb is speaking to
2: i coined this and it's but listening to my people in doing this and so the the times are urgent let us slow down is an invitation to slowness. But here's the thing, slowness is not a reduction of speed. <laughs> right? I remember this German friend of mine who wrote to me after I uttered these words for the first time at a conference in Johannesburg in 2012. And he said um in his note to me that, yeah, it isn't working. I've tried my best to really <laughs> slow down. I do a lot of yoga. I've taken a break and blah, blah, but But, but it, it's not working. And I wish I had my head on my shoulders long enough to respond in the way that I'm responding now, to say to him and to everyone listening that slowing down is not a function of speed. It's a function of the crossroad. So in Yoruba mythology, there is the notion of the crossroad or orita. This is where many roads meet and it's traversed by monsters, you see. So there's a very, very post human sentiment here that we are monstrous becomings. And by monster, I mean, Sarah, that we are indebted to microbes. We're indebted to viruses. Our bodies are literally the patchwork of multiple species so that yeah. it is, it is rude to kind of extricate ourselves from the fabric of this co-becoming. So we come from this crossroad effects. We're a crossroad effect. Slowing down is about noticing this. It's about honoring our indebtedness to this great and radical act of hospitality that is the world and its conditions of our being, right? It's not about reducing one's speed because you can reduce your speed on the same highway and still arrive at the same place that you would have arrived at if you sped up right? So it's really yeah. not about, it's about changing destination. And this is what Harriet Tubman would say through those old Negro spirituals, right? It's about wading in the water, like for the fugitive, and this brings us back full circle, for the fugitive to really escape. The fugitive didn't run on the highway. You ran through the, sh- the bushes. You stole into the night. You performed hiding, right? no longer as a game now or as a sense of just trivial play, but as an act of survival. I think this is exactly what the invitation to slow down is. It's, look, there are other things at large, not just your anxious problems. Now is a time to align yourself with these other entities, is to perform some kind of conspiratorial project, is to listen more than talking, is to press your body to the earth so closely that the boundaries that you're so sure of, you know, start to melt away. It's to listen to fungal entities. It's to, you know, like Delini, go into the wilderness and listen to autistic children in their strain. This is fugitive politics. This is autistic politics.
1: It's to join.
2: Rejoin. It's to rewild. It's not really about taking a break and then getting a big picture. Most people interpret it as, oh, we know we have that already we have vacations. We can go to a hotel and we can take a break, step back and see the big picture. No, it's about seeing the details. But this scene does not come as on the tail of, a gift of our own skills. It's a gift. It's a gift of disabling or disability. And this is what the crossroad always does. It breaks you so that the sacred can find us.
1: I would love you to read out a poem that my therapist friend sent to me when I was in Greece a little while back. (laughs) It was my first introduction to your work. And I think it speaks to quite a lot of what we've just been talking about. Would you be able to read your piece of work that starts with once I lived on the tarred lonely highways? Yeah.
2: Yes. I I wrote this many years ago. Once I lived on the tarred lonely highways of truth, slogging towards the looming horizons, the promised dwelling places for those who did not waver. The whole world was about being either right or wrong. I was either lost or found. That was many years ago though. Today, when I meet people, I recognize how utterly beyond right and wrong they are, how their lives are symphonies beyond orchestration. Now their mistakes and failings are actually cosmic explorations on a scale grander and of a texture softer than our most dedicated rule books could possibly account for. You see, something happened on my way and I lost my coordinates, my map, my directives. Now the whole journey is the destination and each point, each barren point, just as noble as the final dot. Every splotch of ink is become to me a fresco of wisdom, a beehive of honey, a lovely place, and every aching voice, a heavenly choir. The world is no longer desolate and empty and exclusive. She is now a wispy spirit, whose fingers flirt through the wind, a million roads where only one once lay, and I need not be certain about the road travelled since I arrived at the self moment I set out.
1: Oh, I just loved that. And I loved receiving it. I received it at a point when it was just perfect. Look, I don't know how everybody else interprets um, those words, but for me, it really gave a feeling, a visceral feeling for how I want to live my life in the meantime, which is a phrase I use. I think you use it as well.
2: In my book, yes. (laughs) In the meantime.
1: Because we've got all of this stuff going on. We've got crises, uncertainty, fragmentation and pain. I sometimes pull back and I pull back and then I go, going close and I go in close and then I realize that there is still the meantime, there's still a way to live through all of this and not in spite of it, but at the same time adjacent to it. I'm wondering, it sort of leads me to a a question I ask a lot of my guests, not all of them, but I think you're a perfect candidate for the question. What is left if we might lose it all. And I guess it's a bit of a meantime kind of question. What's there for you in the meantime? What lights up your life? What's home for you in the meantime?
2: I'll respond this way. There's an apocryphal legend, the story of a woman who was taken aboard a slave ship and she had a child. And of course this was an economy class, right? This is a slave ship with exacting oppressive conditions. And she did her best to try to keep the child comforted through the journey, which often took weeks. But the child could not be comforted. The child was crying and crying and crying, screaming. But then it is said in some quarters that Eshu, who is the trickster in our, in Yoruba cosmology, that Eshu whispered to her what to do and invited her to tear her dress. And so she did so. She ripped her, her black dress and she weaved from that fragment of her dress a doll, a baby doll, and used that as a toy in the moment. And some say that the child was temporarily comforted. That doll is what is known as an abayomi doll today. And it is a rich practice in Brazil. Abayomi happens to be the name of my father and my son in Yoruba culture. And abayami means that they thought they had buried me, but they did not realize that I'm a seed. The enemy thought he had won, but there is queer life, even in defeat. So that's my response to your question, abayami, that there is a strange afterlife, even in the most despairing of places. And that in these moments of deep loss, our fear is that when we reach Rock bottom, that there's nowhere else to go. But I think, I suspect that life is stranger, that even loss is not fully itself, that even loss is fugitive, and that there is a sense in which even in arriving, there's a strange departure.
1: Yeah. As you say, it's the decade of the strange path. I do get a sense as this urgency, this meantime is, it's right now. It's, it's right now. Yeah hey, this was a wonderfully meandering and very different conversation. And I think a lot of people listening will really enjoy it. I will put some of those references in the show notes and also links to obviously your website and your book so that people can learn more. Thank you so much for getting up early to talk to me uh, from India. (laughs) Thank you. Please go off and enjoy breakfast with your wife and children.
2: I'm grateful, sister. Thank you so much. Okay, there's a hell of a lot
1: to try and absorb from that chat. One thing I'll flag is that the point that thinkers and activists like Bayo are trying to make is that we have to be challenged into new ways of thinking and addressing the issues that we're failing to solve. So they use different and unfamiliar chat techniques to disrupt us into this space. So it's meant to be uncomfortable. So please feel okay about that. A particularly challenging thought that I was left to digest after we hung up was this idea of normal being terrifying. I had to think about it for a bit. He references Ursula Le Guin's *The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas*, and I'll put the link to that book in the show notes. And how the reality of any kind of happiness or security always comes at some moral price. It's something we have to live with, and then that we try to mask over. We put solar panels on the slave ship. We do yoga on the decks of the slave ship, which is just a wonderful metaphor, which is another wonderfully challenging idea I took from the conversation. You know, the slave ship analogy points to how we justify our compromised behavior and try to fix the problem, convince ourselves we're fixing the problem, but we're still in fact in the problem. We're still on the slave ship. We are the problem. So what does leaving the slave ship entail? Well, it's getting lost, it's joining nature, it's getting humble to nature, it's being the wave within the ocean and allowing the ocean to determine things, to find the answers. It's making sanctuary, making emotional space for other mindsets to come through the cracks. Now, I'm off to read the ones who walk away from Omelas. I'm now very intrigued to find out what ethical path the locals of this utopian city chose to take you might want to go to do a deep dive of Bayo's website. It's wild. It's got some great ideas for living a precious life. I'll see you next episode. And don't forget to favorite or follow this podcast and share it with someone who you think might like or might benefit from being introduced to some wilder ideas right now. I'll speak to you next week.